Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Chuck Collins is a devoted worker for the good, and with his latest book, Alter to an Erupting Sun, he has become an amazing novelist. His previous books, like Born on Third Base and Wealth in Our Commonwealth, have been nonfiction, persuasively working for fairness, equality, and justice. And his new novel works for all these and more through vivid and historically accurate storytelling. Chuck also asks a very big question about when it's justifiable to use horrific violence against horrific injustice. The book is captivating, and Chuck is as engaging a guide to passionate activism as you could possibly wish. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on this program. Chuck Collins joins us today on Zoom from Vermont. Chuck, how absolutely magnificent to have you back for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me back. You're in Vermont right now. You were in New York a day or two ago. I mean, tell me, where are you peregrinating to? I'm on my pilgrimage, but I live in Vermont. I live in southern Vermont now. Where at specifically? Outside Brattleboro, wonderful Wyndham County. Putney? I'm in the town of Guilford. Oh, okay. Which is the fifth word in the book. (laughs) You know, having grown up in Wisconsin, I always thought everything in the eastern part of the country was one big New York City stretched across there. And so for my Peace Corps training, uh, the first two months happened in Putney area. So I got to know Brattleboro and everything. And all of a sudden, there's this beautiful end of the country. I had no idea was there. Are you long time for that area? I was born in Wisconsin. I pretty much raised my family in Boston, and we moved here five years ago. I know the School for International Training is still there. You would be happy to know they now have a historic plaque there. Sergeant Shriver came and put it up last year commemorating the first Peace Corps training programs. Wild. So New York, uh, you've been to, and I think you must be going other places promoting this book with Altar of an Erupting Sun is an amazing book. It's, it's, I, I can't tell you how much it warmed my heart. It was something like an affirmation of much of my life and the concerns I've carried. Tell the listeners for Spirit and Action a little bit about your own connection with all these issues. Well, in some ways, this novel, it's a work of fiction, but it's kind of an altar to the people and movements and elders who shaped me and thereby shaped the main character of the book. And it's not entirely overlapping. There are things that happened before I was around. But, you know, it was really looking at people like Wally and Juanita Nelson, who were leaders in the Congress on Racial Equality, who went back to the land and tried to live a nonviolent life and resist war taxes and that sort of thing. Those were formative elders that are on my altar and are on the altar in this book, in a sense. There was just one time I got to meet Juanita. I was out in Massachusetts for the National Quaker Gathering I go to each year, Friends General Conference, and it was held at Amherst two different years. So anyway, Anita was there for one of them in a workshop group that I was part of. And it's like, wait, what? (laughs) That's just so much grabbing a piece of history. And particularly for me as a longtime war tax resistor, 
her inspiration in that movement as well. And they're right at Woolman Hill and all that. I'm mystified in this book. Either you were with all these people. It, I just have this seamless sense of reality with each of these situations you deal with in the book. So did you know, Juanita, did you know, I mean, I know you didn't get to meet Norman Morrison, but there's so many people you speak of in the book in the first person format, Brian Wilson. And I don't know if all our listeners know who all these people are, but you speak of them so personally, so clearly. I have this feeling that either you were there with them throughout this entire history, or you must have talked to 10 or 20 people who knew them well. It just seems so clear that this is reality you're talking about. Well, it is a work of fiction, but I drew on some real experiences. I knew Wally and Juanita. I lived in Greenfield, uh, lived down the road from them and pulled a lot of weeds on Woolman Hill at, at their farm. And I knew Brian Wilson when he was working at the as the director of the Veterans Education Center in Greenfield. And thereby, I learned about Norman Morrison through Brian, who was a Vietnam vet who was very, very much affected by Norman Morrison's witness. So yeah, there's a lot of weaving in as well as, you know, researching and learning about people like Sam Lovejoy, who I didn't know well, but is still with us, fortunately. And I could talk to him and get his stories and weave them into this work of fiction as well. There isn't any particular person or two or three people who particularly are the the pattern for Ray by any chance? No, Ray is a composite of many people I've met. She weaves in a lot of those qualities. Some people who know my the person I'm married to think that there's a lot of her in Ray, but not really. Ray's unique. She is a sense there's a group of women who maybe are five more often ten years older than me that I looked up to who are kind of embodied in Ray. How much of Ray is you, or or maybe it's more like Reggie is you, I don't know. I'm really wondering, either aspirationally or experientially, and, and people will understand shortly why, why I'm talking about this, because I'm trying to set an understanding of how we go into a work of fiction, as you say, but which is so full of reality. So are you a character in the book? I'm really not. I really got to enjoy the idea of creating characters. You know, obviously, yeah, draw on your experience. There's no, I don't have anything else to draw on. But, you know, I think that they're unique creations drawing on my life experience. There's a lot of jokes that are definitely, you know, I, I make this reference early on to Reggie doesn't like to stay up past nine o'clock, which is Quaker midnight in his book. That's you know, I'm, I wasn't raised a Quaker, but I'm around a lot of Quakers, and that's a common joke that it's time to go to bed. It's past Quaker midnight. <laughs> so, yeah, I can, you can only draw on your own experience. For one of the first times I uh, attended Quaker meeting, I one of the things that was told to me, and I really didn't have a firm grasp of Quakers by then, but things starting late, the joke was that, yeah, we're on Quaker daylight savings time. It's an hour behind everyone else. <laughs> How obscure as it could be. And I just taught my granddaughters the ASL sign for Quakers. Do you know what it is? No. <laughs> Twiddling your thumbs. I yes. That's good. That's good. <laughs> yep, that's it. So I'm sorry, Spirit and Action listeners, if I'm leaving you in the dust as I go down all these questions with Chuck Collins, but I wanted to you to understand up front that I come to this interview with an amazing amount of gratitude and reverence. I feel inspiration. And I also have this sense of tough wrestling because there's the, the Bonhoeffer question that's kind of at the center of much of it. 
So let's start off. You've written at least three books before, one with Bill Gates Sr., not Bill Gates Jr., including Born on Third Base. And I've got links to those on northernspiritradio.org. So, folks, you can track down my previous interview and you'll find out other works by Chuck. But this book is, again, fiction. And it's fiction about all kinds of realistic stuff. I, you'll, people will learn so much history that they may have missed in this book. Why did you go to fiction? Well, I've been trying to be a better storyteller, even in my nonfiction, you know, learning how to write better nonfiction narrative with more stories that kind of help the reader. I've written some books now that I look back 15 years, 20 years, some rather boring books, you know, they're, <laughs> they're sort of like, uh, I, I don't think they cause harm, but they certainly don't inspire about economic issues, about inequality. So anyway, I've gradually, slowly been, I think, getting better at writing stories, personal stories, weaving things in. And so it was logical. And I, I didn't really set out to be a novelist or to write fiction. And I'm, this may be the one and only time I do that. But I just had this story and this person knocking on my inner door, Ray Kelleher, the main character, and her story of, you use the word wrestling, her wrestling with how to respond to kind of the impossible news of the ecological and moment we're in. And so I wanted to weave in these different ex real experiences as a way to honor them. So for people like yourself, you, you're going to see yourself and some of your own history may be there. And for younger readers, hopefully they'll be inspired to learn about some of that history. So I'm always a guy with an agenda, I have to confess. You know, I'm not just sitting around writing pure fiction. I want to offer up a vision of maybe how we can, as humans, kind of get our act together a little bit in the short term. I want to lift up and celebrate the people who've been at it for a long time. I want to know if we have to give a spoiler alert. The main thing around which this book is painted, I guess you'd say, is an act by Ray Kelleher. And she decides to be a suicide bomber and kill a carbon baron, right? She steps into, and this is a lifelong nonviolent pacifist type hanging out with Quakers and Unitarians and other such people who just abhor violence. And so it starts out with this big question, what would lead someone to do this who from so much of their life you'd think would be in the opposite direction? It's a tough question and it's a big question. I mean, I, did you have to face a draft board? Did you get asked, you know, if Hitler was there, you'd get to kill him? You know, I mean, that's one of those things that people wonder about. You didn't have to face anybody with those questions? No, I was born in, in the last month of 1959. So I didn't even have to make that decision about whether to sign the selective service form that people a year younger than me had to. But, you know, it's not at all a spoiler alert, I think, to say that the book begins with Ray who is at this point approaching 70, terminally ill, engaging in this shocking act of taking her own life. And, you know, I think those of us who wrestle with questions of nonviolence understand we need to really kick the tires on our assumptions and, and really reflect and engage. And as you say, Ray is somebody who's completely formed and her elders and her influences are all people who have fought the good fight with respectful nonviolence and sometimes militant nonviolence. And, uh, you know, she's somebody who, as her uh, partner and, and husband, Reggie, says, you know, she wants to see the salamanders 
make it across the road. She puts on a reflective vest and goes out on the first warm nights of rainy nights of March and helps salamanders and wood frogs get across the road because, you know, so her respect for life is so deep until this final five minutes of her life. And so, you know, it is the question of what led her to that break, if you will, to, to break her faith with her traditions and her past. And for some, it's a shocking decision. And she's also revered. And that's what I, I just, again, I, I can't say it enough, Chuck. You do this masterfully. None of the people in the book appear fake or forced or anything. They all look reasonable. The closest one I had difficulty with was her brother, Toby, in there. And just that he comes around in the end. That one, I didn't fully follow that transition. That's the only one that I felt like I was missing some pieces. The rest of them all just seemed seamless to me. So were you an English major? <laughs> no, no. It's just amazing. The writing is so perfectly good. The storytelling is so good. It's either just a gift that you were born with, or or maybe this was the 27th version. Probably more the latter. So let's just say I got a lot of help. You know, there's the Annie Lamott quote, which is, you work toward getting your first draft, you know, to get that out. And I had some really good readers and honest readers and women readers who said, eh, it doesn't really sound like how I would dramatize a female voice here. So yeah, I got a lot of help. But I also, I kind of feel like it didn't take me a long time to write the book, meaning it kind of flowed out. The story was had been maybe percolating and was it wasn't uh, the struggle that sometimes writers face. So I do think there was a bit of, I was getting a, a helping hand along the way, you know, in terms of telling the story. So you're too young for some of the first things that are taking place in the book. I mean, you couldn't really be part of the 60s. I, I'm barely, I graduated high school in 72. So, and my wife, who's five years older, she was an official hippie. I wasn't, never was that sort, partly because I've never had long hair. I've never done drugs. I've never even been tipsy from drinking. So I fail in so many ways. And yet I lived right next to that by being the extra five years younger that you are from me. That means you missed a lot of it. Which of the events in this book, the part that you call formation, what makes Ray who she is? Which of them did you actually live? The anti-nuke movement? I mean, you actually mentioned you knew Juanita and, and Wally Nelson. Did you go to Central America? Which are these are your events, too? I had some of the same elders. You know, I knew Wally and Juanita Nelson. And again, I knew people who, like your generation and your wife's generation, who were very important in my life, who were very patient and accepting and also role models. I did go to Central America, and there's a section of the book called Accompaniment, which is Ray goes to Mexico and El Salvador and Nicaragua. Those were experiences I had that were very, very influential, as they were for my fictional Ray. They really imprinted on her sort of an understanding of global inequality, the global gap between Central America and the U.S. and the role of U.S. foreign policy. So my character does cut 3,000 onions in a soup kitchen in Mexico City, and I, too, cut 3,000 onions. <laughs> I also, for this book, I built an altar of many of the people in the book. And actually, when I'm in doing an in-person event, I sort of schlepped this altar around. And I have on the altar a picture that I took from a refugee camp of Egg Day. 
Ray Kelleher is getting oriented to this refugee camp. And she's this woman, Ruthie, from the Lutheran Volunteer Corps says, now, you know, we really look forward to egg day. And Ray's like, what's egg day? Well, that's when everybody gets an egg. And Ray's like, one egg? And Ruthie says, well, there's 4,000 people who live here. So on my altar, I have a picture that I took from egg day of everybody lining up to get their egg, 4,000 people in a refugee camp. You don't forget things like that. That's a formative experience on my altar, uh, as well as seeing other people's altars and being invited into the intimacy of who is on someone's altar and having them walk you through that. Very, very important to me. Again, folks, Chuck Collins' book is called Altar to an Erupting Sun. And you'll get more idea about the sun and the altar as we go on. I'm interested to hear that you have that practice. I've never had it. I've seen people who've had something like that. Is that where you picked it up? Where did you get this inspired in your heart, the altar practice? I think it was in Central America and and in Mexico, where there's the Day of the Dead tradition, where families often have a private family altar, and that may exist in their home, you know, an altar of remembrance. But a lot of other cultures also have altars and altars of remembrance. So, yeah, I I think, you know, around that time in in the the Celtic Irish tradition that I come from, there's Samhain, which is sort of the kind of like the uh, all saints, all souls time where, you know, it's the thin time where you can kind of go between this life and other lives, communicate with ancestors. That tradition is universal. And I I just realized that I'm just late to the understanding that this is very, very important. And for Ray, it's fictional, but she talks about how she returns from Central America thinking, okay, I've seen people who've lived through incredible trauma and loss, but they pull toward life. And part of their source is that sense that they're part of something bigger, that there are ancestors, that they have an altar, that they're communicating with them. Yesterday, actually, I just went to an event in my neighborhood. Our hospice has a living memorial garden, and they built a phone booth. They call it the wind phone. Maybe you've seen these before. It's a phone booth with a phone. No coins required. And you can pick up this phone and call the other side. Oh, wow. The person building the phone booth said, do you have any slate? And I said, do I have slate? I have a barn full of old Guilford's roof slates. So the the wind phone has the slate from our old farm barn. Anyway, so now I want to build a, a wind phone. But so I think we keep learning about what other cultures have known all along, which is we're part of a bigger web here. Again, altar to an erupting sun. The altar part, memorial, uh, a collage. I mean, there's many words that can go with it. it. But it's got something spiritual at the center, and that's why it's an altar, not just a memorial. You know, I've been to Rwanda, and I've been to some of the genocide sites. So talk about crazy thing. There's one that was a church, a, a rural Catholic church, where there was a mass slaughter of the Tutsi who were taking refuge there as the mass killings were going on. And some 2,000, 3,000, no, 5,000 were killed on that spot. It's a fairly big church, but it's not big by our standards in the U.S. And the way that they made their altar at one end of the room in the church, the, the great big room, is some shelves where they've got the bones on it. But the thing that was most affecting to me was the cloth that the people had been wearing. It's strung up so you see this cloth blowing in the wind. And that made it such a powerful altar to me. And, of course, this was the actual church, too, that I was seeing it at. So 
Uh, is there an altar or other altars that you were witness to that were particularly powerful, inspirational to you in terms of writing this book, in terms of capturing this idea of, I think it's partly carrying our ancestors and our experience with us. Put it in your own words, though, Chuck. Well, I did live in Oaxaca, Mexico for a year, so I participated in what they would call the celebration of Day of the Dead. And it was striking to me that the whole, particularly Oaxaca, the whole society, everything closes. Restaurants, the banks, the schools, and people spend three days honoring ancestors. And the first night of Day of the Dead, which we call Halloween here, is the most private and personal and family. And particularly where you're kind of honoring anybody that's died in the last year or the death of a child. But then the second and third day are celebratory and people go out into the cemeteries and bring the favorite foods of the deceased and spend all night vigiling and telling stories and drinking hot chocolate and mezcal or whatever. And to me, it was like, wow, if you spend this time honoring remembrance, you know, remembering those who've passed, that kind of creates a different feeling about death and dying. You, You know, you realize like, if I were to die... And the traditional Latin America is the memory lives on as long as you live in human memory. As long as people are remembering you, you still live. And actually, the Disney cartoon Coco actually captures that quite beautifully. You know, there's a a scene where somebody's about to fade from memory and the children organize to get this person back on the altar. You know, so I think that there's something to be learned from that. Brian Wilson, uh, who's a character in my book, not the Beach Boys singer Brian Wilson, but S. Brian Wilson, was a Vietnam veteran and anti-war activist. He told me the story, and it's a true story that I tell in Altar to an Erupting Sun, of being in Vietnam, being on the ground. You know, he knew about who Norman Morrison was when he shipped out as a soldier to Vietnam, but he was gung-ho pro-war at that point. He heard about Norman Morrison's witness at the Pentagon For listeners, you know, Norman Morrison was a Quaker from Baltimore who self-emulated in the spirit of Vietnamese monks outside the office of Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, in 1965. So Brian goes to Vietnam. He's on a sort of ground reconnaissance mission following up a U.S. bombing in a village. The village is sort of empty, and he goes into a hut, and there is a Vietnamese altar of remembrance. The candles are still burning on this altar, even though there are no people around. And on this altar are pictures of some of these elders, paintings of family elders. And there's a f- picture of Norman Morrison on an altar in Vietnam. And Brian will, Brian is just, he told me this story. It's just an extraordinary story. So here are people, you know, half the earth away honoring the legacy and witness of Norman Morrison. And even after Ray commits her, you know, kind of shocking and horrific act, there are people in other parts of the world, particularly in the societies where sea level rise is about to destroy the island nations in certain places. Ray Kelleher is on their altar. So there's that echo of honoring and remembrance that was inspiring to me. I should have done this right from the beginning, Chuck. Why did you write the book? What is the meaning? I mean, it could be the Bonhoeffer question that was the reason for the book or some other thing. Where In your heart, what's the reason for the book? It's very much for those of us living in this moment. It's written to sort of think about how do we face this impossible news? You know, I'm sitting here in New England where the sky is completely fogged in because of forest fire smoke a thousand miles away. We're going to continue to see on a daily basis the disruption flooding and deluges and droughts and 
disruptions to food systems. And for people living in the global south, it's going to be even more intense in the coming decade. So part of it is to say, well, what is it we should do? And part of what I try to do is show one community coming together, strengthening their culture of mutual aid and support and celebration and changing the culture around facing death and dying. And part of it is this question of wrestling with how do we stop the harms? How do we stop the evil forces that are organized and pushing us to the brink and don't seem seem impervious to any sort of political or social action? So in the end, Ray Kelleher is grappling with how do I stop the harms? We're scratching the surface as we try and dive deeper and deeper with Chuck Collins about his book, Altar to an Erupting Sun. It's a book he's just released. It's fiction full of fact. And there's so much wonderful history in it. I've got a link to his site, chuckcollinswrites.com, on northernspiritradio.org. But this isn't the first time I've talked to Chuck at all, a couple times. We've talked, and inequality.org is another website, very central to his work. Probably his best-known book was Born on Third Base. And I think that with this book, he's hit a home run. So I got to say, it's an incredible book, folks. To me, it doesn't matter if these are your issues or whatever. You want to read this book just to travel this experience. It really gives you a very good chance to walk in someone else's shoes in so many different parts of our history and our country and in Central America, for that matter. So again, the links to my previous interviews with Chuck Collins are on northernspiritradio.org. I'll have them linked with this interview about Altar to an Erupting Sun. But all of my guests from the past 18 years, and it's been 18 years now I've been doing both Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul, they're on northernspiritradio.org. So come check them out, follow the links, connect with the people that I've talked to, people who are doing world healing work in so many different ways, just as Chuck is doing with this book of fiction. Also, please remember to check out and support the local community radio stations. We've got some 35 to 45 of them carrying our programs across the country. Maybe you have one in your city, your town, where they haven't yet picked up Spirit in Action or Song of the Soul. Talk to them. Get them on there. It doesn't cost them anything, and we like to reach out as widely as we can because having an alternative form of news is so very important. In various ways, as you go through Chuck's book, you'll see how news and what people hear and where they connect. In the book, Ray's brother, who grew up in the same place in the Midwest she did, you know, he ends up going on a different path, and he gets plugged into some of the right-wing news stations and sources, and uh, gets bent in a very different direction than what it seemed like he was early. So please support your local community radio station because those alternative, individually, with a lot of integrity, people who are putting out this news, they need our support. Support them. You can donate to Northern Spirit Radio. That's how this full-time work is supported. And also, please just post us a comment. Let us know who we should be talking to, what you're thinking. Two-way communication is the best, and you can help us out on northernspiritradio.org. Now, again, I just asked Chuck, you know, why did you write the book? What was the purpose behind the book? Maybe it's just that you had to tell the story. Sometimes my wife tells me, by the way, Chuck, that I should write a book, my biography, my stories, because she says, even though she's been with me more than 30 years, 
and she's heard all my stories far too many times. She says, they're really good stories. You need to put them in a book. And the things that you relate in this book are such good stories. I've never been to Central America. I've been to Mexico. I've been to Cuba. But I was in Africa, and I've traveled back there a number of times. And having had those firsthand experiences, if someone can put yourself in the shoes of someone on the ground there, it is transforming to the worldview. And you do that so well through the book. You capture it. And again, I don't mean to embarrass you. I, that isn't the point. The point is I want our listeners for Spirit in Action to read this book because it will make a difference to them and to the world. Any other particular senses of motivation? Did you just have to be a storyteller? I mean, maybe you had a grandfather who sat you on his knee and he told you stories and you say, I want to be like grandpa. Well, I do definitely come from the Irish storytelling part of our family. My father, who's still with me, 92 years old, is a great storyteller, great joke teller, always got a story in his back pocket. So, an altar, I mean, a motivation is this is an altar. You can build altars in different forms to tell stories some of them true stories about people. It's, you know, I can't think of a more fun project. And a couple of people have read have read the book and said, one, one friend of mine who's turned 70 this week, she says, I'm for my birthday, I'm building an altar of all the people I feel gratitude toward who've helped me become who I am. I'm thinking, what a great project to do. <laughs> if that could be inspired, if more people build altars, if more people recognize, you know, we're, we live in a very death phobic culture. And that's part of what keeps us from sort of facing the ecological crisis. I do think we're wired to be able to respond. And a part of it is we live in a culture of denial. So it's not a coincidence that Ray is a death doula, that she's trying to create a new culture around death and dying, where people actually have like their living Shiva, they have their memorial service before they die, so they can participate. That's kind of a different idea. But I start to, I'm seeing the seeds of a different culture around me. And then it's fun to sort of imagine and play it out. Okay, seven years into the future, how does this evolve? A lot of future fiction or science fiction looks way far ahead. 40 years, 100 years. Well, my view was, let's just look ahead seven years since that's this is the critical decade and we kind of need to get our act together and start to turn the corner. So what are the elements of shifting our culture so we begin to turn the corner? And one of them is around how we approach death and dying. And by the way, folks, in case you think I'm over-exaggerating how wonderful this book is, look at the comments posted on inside the cover on the back by Winona LaDuke, Bill McKibben, Frida Berrigan, Starhawk, Francis Morlape, Tim DeChristopher. These are all people who've been part of the work, who've experienced from the inside. So they know the stories that Chuck Collins is telling inside here. They know it firsthand, too. They can validate that what he tells is both real and compelling. It's just very powerful. Now, again, I've referred to Bonhoeffer, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Do people not know about his plot, his attempt to kill Hitler? And this is a very religious man, right? A deep philosopher, a deep moralist. And he faces the question when someone's participating in motivating, driving the murder of millions of people. Is it okay to do that which is so abhorrent to us? I'm sure there's other people in the past who felt that question, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer stands out as very special, and now Ray Kelleher stands out as the person facing that particular question. Is this a question inside you too, or is it just one that from the sidelines looks like a key question? 
I think it was a couple of years ago, I, I saw an article in Sojourners with the title, Is This a Bonhoeffer Moment? I don't think that that meant, should we go out and murder tyrants? I think it was the larger sort of Bonhoeffer idea of bold and radical personal witness and non-cooperation with harm and evil. So I was intrigued by that. And I've learned a lot through reading fiction. And I read a novel, a novelized version of the life of Diedrich Bonhoeffer called Saints and Villains by Denise Gardenia. And then it sort of opened the door to like, oh, I'm going to read the original texts. I'm going to read about Bonhoeffer's life. And, you know, I feel like he wrestled deeply with this question. He's a deeply rooted Christian pacifist, but at this critical point, moment of his life, he asks his spiritual director, will you grant absolution for the killing of a tyrant? He doesn't get the answer to that question, but you can see his state of mind. And Bonhoeffer, he literally gave a radio speech the day that Hitler came into power in 1933, saying that Hitler was practicing idolatry and that the German church should reject and yet the German church lined up and basically the dominoes fell and they cooperated with the Third Reich. And Bonhoeffer then split off and led the free church, the independent church, and was, you know, persecuted as family members and others were persecuted for that. So like Bonhoeffer, Ray is wrestling with her commitment to nonviolence in the case of a Hitler-like situation. Yeah, I think we're in that moment. I don't think it means, you know, I think there's enough that I try to show in the book of the negative side, the harms that come from Ray's shocking action, but her exhortation to act boldly, whatever that looks like for you in this moment. And she would say the fossil fuel industry is the face of evil, which is, again, her husband says she never used the word evil about any living creature. But her understanding at the end of her life is that these folks, they're actual human beings who knew, know the harms that they're causing. They're metaphorically putting poison into the village well, knowing that the children are going to drink the water the next day. To her, that is a manifestation of evil, and she must act to stop it. That's sort of at the end of her life. And of course, she's struggling with her own body, a body that she's taken care of and has trusted. Is now, you know, the cancer cells are spreading in her body. She's mentally becoming more stressed out. Her husband, Reggie, described her as, hey, you know, your usual cold anger has now turned into a meltdown. He's observing this change in her, a troubling change in his experience. So there's both the interpersonal and the sort of larger, her larger understanding of the moment we're in. I want people to feel that and grapple with that. I faced the question myself. I turned 18 in 72, which is the, I had to register for the draft, but they didn't draft anyone. And it was another year or so later is when they stopped the draft completely. So I actually never had to face going in the military answering that question. And I certainly know from my point of view now what I would do. But back then, it's just not that clear when you're living in the middle of the fog. And, and I mean, in the aftermath, we can look back and say, really, did we need to fight in Vietnam because we wanted the rubber plantations? Or, you know, did we need to go in Cuba because of bananas, United Fruit? All those kinds of things. And was the domino theory really going on in Southeast Asia? I just, I've learned so much about those things in the aftermath. But when I'm 18, it's more like I got to jump in and do something. And what I love about the book here is you start the book with some of the questions there facing what Ray did, but you don't really do 
the reckoning, the totaling of the full motivations, the pros and cons until the end of the book, after you've gone through the section you call formation. So I want to talk a bit about the items in formation and why they were important to you. One of them is that Ray, you know, she finishes high school living in the mid West area. She's, you know, it's not a liberal family she's coming from. <laughs> and she goes to Amherst and she starts seeing the world differently with other filters on and off that she's got. And so starting her second year, she drops out and goes live in a commune. Have you lived in a commune? Is that important to you? What's the closest you've come? By the way, folks should know that you had some family wealth coming your way. You decided not to take it. And you decided that inequality was a big problem. That the 1% or the 0.1%, that's not good for us. So I thought you might have lived in a commune, especially when you gave your money away. I did live in a kind of, I guess you could call it more like a Catholic worker community where people lived and worked and lived simply. It wasn't, you know, the the image of a commune, the sort of back to the land dropout, but we were working together. We were working to help create community land trusts for affordable housing. So I had that experience of living in community with several people who were religious sisters, Catholic nuns, and people who were shaped by Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker movement. So I was lucky in that sense. And we lived right down the road from Wally and Juanita Nelson. So they were regular visitors to our house and our dinner table. But the commune that Ray is formed by, I knew people who lived there, what was called the Montague Farm. And they were, again, a community where people got very involved in the struggle against nuclear power plants. And so that community sort of had a kind of a mission in addition to living simply and living well and growing some food. They also had a public mission, which I admired. I was particularly pleased to see her get back to the land early in the book, Ray's living there. And why would you ever want to live this? This is paradise. And then uh, through a relationship, she gets living in the city and active and becomes trained in activism, which is really key. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful things you learn on the farm, but you don't necessarily learn how to get people signed up to en masse oppose nuclear power or whatever. So I was pleased that she comes back to that in the later years towards her 70th birthday when her denouement happens. So was it important to you to talk about community in terms of activism? Because our society misses it so much. For most people in our society, I suspect that their biggest sense of community is who, which Starbucks you go to or that you're wearing, uh, which sports shoe you're wearing or which beer that you... It's a community that happens through commercialism, and that is unfortunate. So I thought that perhaps you were very deliberately saying community is important, living with people, sharing lives. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, Ray kind of is a role model for what does it look like to not live in isolation, you know, and she has a primary partner and later her becomes her husband, but she's living with other people. She's living in a kind of close-knit community. They buy this farm in Vermont, the Hidden River Farm. And there are lots of people living there. And there's even some sort of inside jokes about community living. Ray Ray says, I like living with other people, but I don't want to have to share a kitchen and a bathroom with them. (laughs) And so she talks about, you know, maybe this co-housing idea where people, you sort of have your own individual space, but you 
have this convivial, you share meals and you share a lot more and there are people around and you're not, you know, uh, the U.S. Health Administration just declared loneliness and isolation as a national health epidemic, that the number of people who live alone and feel disconnected, especially coming out of the pandemic, is it's a health crisis. And the people at Ray's Community Hidden River Farm, they also live through the pandemic but they call it kind of a joyous rehearsal for the disrupted future because they're celebrating life together. They're building altars. They're making music. And and Ray herself is the grand dam of the party. She just loves to organize parties. If it's your birthday, Mark, you're going to have a party, you know, and she's going to dress up at it. And I think that is a clue as to how we're going to weather the storms is we're going to have to create a culture of life and celebration along with facing the harms. And so in that way, I think Ray is kind of a good model in her joy and her seriousness. Again, that's just one small part of Alter to Interrupting Sun by Chuck Collins. You also talk in this formation period, you talk about her experiences. One of them was organizing uh, against the nuclear power and you know, it's so the China syndrome comes out, the Three Mile Island thing happens right at the same time. So the, the whole Acres of Clams, the big clamshell alliance that formed in Massachusetts, in all of New England, really, that's all historical. And I think that any of us who does activism needs to cut our teeth on how you actually do activism. So I suspected that was essential in the book, because a formation, not only for Ray, but for any of us, we need to get some victory because losing all the time is really not all that fun. Yeah. One of the things that I think a reader will find is Ray is 19 when she moves to the Montague farm. And there's a cohort of people who are five, six, seven years older who she looks up to and they bring her along, but they're actively organizing and she learns from them. And she's sort of the quiet person for many years in these meetings. And then they discover that she's a really good trainer, that she's good at training people in nonviolence and nonviolent direct action. She actually goes to this real, no longer existing, but the Movement for New Society, Quaker-based nonviolent training school in Philadelphia. And she does this several weeks of intensive skills building. And she comes back and she's becoming a leader and her confidence grows. And basically, she carries that with her for the rest of her life. She helps train the people who are trying to shut down the School of Americas, which is a military training program for Latin American dictatorships, where they train people in you know, torture and techniques for interrogation. She trains all the people who go and try to block that army base every year. She trains people who are trying to stop a pipeline from being built in their Boston neighborhood. And even earlier, you know, people who are training to to stop the intervention in Nicaragua. So part of her formation is developing as a leader, becoming useful, developing useful organizing skills, and applying them to social movements. And And what you said about victories is true. You know, a lot of people toil in the vineyard and feel like their actions don't matter. And she has an experience early on, and it's completely accidental, which is she's organizing against nuclear power plants, nobody's paying attention, and then all of a sudden the Three Mile Island accident happens, and there's a quickening, and there are victories. So she has this experience of like, you have to do a lot of preparation, but that matters. And she also has the experience of losing. You know, They're trying to stop this pipeline in West Roxbury, Massachusetts, and they lose. They're unable to stop it. And 
fracked natural gas flows through this pipeline. And she has regrets and she evaluates what could we have done differently. But anyway, all those things are part of the people, the movements, the books that shape her. I have to ask you about one thing that I just wasn't aware of historically, if it's in fact true. There's the tower that's taken down by Sam. And I don't know if that's a real event or not. It's a real event. And in fact, on the website that I created, if people want to know about the background, I don't have footnotes like a nonfiction book. But if people are interested in the stories, I kind of put the resources together. And there's a great documentary. So the real life story is Sam Lovejoy, who's part of the effort to stop a very large nuclear power plant from being built in rural Montague, Massachusetts, next to the Connecticut River. And it looked like it was a done deal. I mean, they were just going to build this plant and they put up a weather tower before they began construction to sort of monitor the wind trends and the like. And he decided in an act of civil disobedience to cut the cables on this tower and it fell over and he walked to the police station and turned himself in. And he was charged with destruction of property and he went to trial and he became his own lawyer. But he brought in Howard Zinn, the historian, to testify in his defense about the importance of nonviolent civil disobedience in U.S. history, the anti-slavery movement and other movements. And they brought in Irving Goffman, an expert on the capture of nuclear power and the, the way the industry kind of captured government oversight. And so all these stories, true stories, are sort of woven into this book. And they're part of Ray Callagher's formation because she's sitting there in the courtroom watching this all unfold. But yeah, it's a true story. One thing I really love about this book is I got a friend of mine to draw a couple maps that are maps of the region. It's a place-based book. It could be written. There's probably allegorical stories other places, but there are things that are on the map, like Lovejoy's Tower and the waterfall where she and her husband had their first kiss. All those things are on the map. <laughs> uh, it's some wonderful stuff. And again, folks, this is fiction, but I would say 95% of it's simply true. It's historical stuff. And a couple of the names have been changed, but a lot of the names haven't been changed. So, you know, when you're reading about Norman Morrison or Juanita and Wally Nelson, or if you're talking about what's happening in El Salvador, Nicaragua, these are real things that happen. So it doesn't just seem real. It is real, in fact. It was important. I think it was absolutely important in the book to travel to Central America to see the world out that. I think all of us need that vision enlarging step. And so there's a reason why this is part of the formation. The part of the book, which I'm wondering how many people will have a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction against. There are so many wonderful Catholic worker movement folks that I've known in my life because I am Quaker, I know those Quaker activists, their life. I know a lot of wonderful Unitarians. You mentioned, uh, what's it called, First Church, I think, is one of that. There's a lot of religious people in this book, and I think that there's a real taste against religion right now. I'm spiritual, not religious. But why did you include so many religious people in all this? I mean, couldn't you just ignore all that? Well, I think in the case of Ray Kelleher and a lot of people, that's part of their formation. Ray grew up in a Roman Catholic tradition. She didn't have a lot of negative experiences of that. I think it was, a, it was kind of a benign experience in her case. But she then quickly is exposed to women religious, you know, nuns who are very worldly and global in their outlook people who are part of the Catholic worker movement, people like Wally and Woody Nelson, who are not explicitly religious, but very, very spiritually rooted on land and in place and very 
practice a certain reverence in their lives. So I was aware that many readers might have a sort of knee-jerk religious anti, but I kind of wanted to weave in these concepts of formation and discipleship because maybe there's a new ways of forming ourselves and new forms of discipleship that we need to kind of think through and pioneer. But at the very end, Reggie kind of gives it seven years after at a gathering to honor Ray. He says, you know, people ask, is Ray religious? And he says, absolutely. She was very, very formed by these different religious traditions. And she believed that the life they were creating at Hidden River Farm, which was queer friendly, welcoming the stranger, welcoming immigrants and displaced people to the farm, interracial, committed to radical hospitality. All these were the elements of what she believed to be the new discipleship. So she's building on the best elements of the faith tradition she was exposed to, and she's even taking it further in terms of radical personalism. The Catholic worker, the Peter Marr and Dorothy Days were, you don't like what you see? Look at the seeds of violence in yourself. You know, the John Woolman idea, where do I cooperate with an unjust system? Uh, how do I delink from those harmful systems? She's taking that to facing the disrupted climate future, and we need to create new discipleship practices. You know, many of our religious traditions probably don't have enough roots in a sort of nature-based, I mean, most indigenous traditions obviously are rooted in the sense of our interconnection and our web. The Christian traditions that Ray grew up with don't pay enough attention to that. And she points that out. She says, you know, we're part of a web. We're part of a cosmic web. She lives into a new spiritualism, I think, instead of discipleship practices. I know we have to wrap this up. I'd really like to go on quite a bit more because there's so many aspects of the book that I love. But toward the end of the book, there is this heavy-duty facing of discussion about the Bonhoeffer question. And what's really interesting about this, again, Ray, she, and toward the beginning of the book, we find out she has put on a vest, gone, blown herself up to kill this head of a petrochemical organization, someone who consciously, with a forethought and just for his own profit, says, yeah, we're going to do this, even though we know it's going to ruin the world. I don't mind that those millions of people die as long as I get mine, Jack, you know. So she makes a conscious decision that those people who are selling out our future need to be aware that they are seen, they are known. We've taken names, you know. So she, a lifelong pacifist, ends up committing a murder with a couple other people who end up dying. You might say innocence right alongside. Her husband, Reggie, does not support the act. He didn't know about it ahead of time. Uh, he says it was wrong, it was immoral, it's wrong what she did, and we understand her, right? And so that discussion, I think, will be fruitful for people, anyone who's had to wrestle with those kinds of questions. What are we going to put on the line? And for m many people right now, climate change is that issue because it is such a juggernaut bearing down, and we've got to stop it now. And people who said, well, we haven't fallen over the cliff yet, but once we're over the cliff, we're talking about many billions of people dying and how many species dying out and all this. How hard was it for you to write that dialogue, that discussion? It's not a philosophical consideration. It feels more like an earnest spiritual wrestling with the question. How hard was that for you, Chuck? 
it definitely challenged me personally to sort of imagine, you know, they actually have what Quakers call a clearness committee, you know, on a mountaintop with a couple of trusted friends to wrestle Ray and Reggie, plus their sort of adopted daughter and one of their closest friends really get into this question. And, you know, I tried to show the complexity and the depth of their feelings, Ray's feelings, as well as Reggie, who says, this is a terrible idea, might be cathartic for you, but it's going to have all kinds of negative repercussions. It's morally and tactically wrong. And he really articulates that view, I hope, well. And Ray responds from her point of view that, you know, these carbon barons, these profiteers of the leaders of this industry, in Dante's words, they occupy the lowest ring of hell. They are incapable of stopping themselves and our political system is incapable of stopping them because they've rigged it. And so what other recourse do I have? So it was challenging. It still is challenging for me to think about that. And that's the conversation I hope to continue on. You know, the book is always an opportunity like you and I are having for a conversation. That's the conversation that I hope me and you and many others get to wrestle with as we face our disrupted future. I'll say it one more time, folks. The book, Alter to Interrupting Sun by Chuck Collins, is a wonderful book. It's captivating. It's deep. It's got the important questions, but even more so, it's got real live, lived experience in it. So when in the book, when Chuck's writing about the conversations with Father Roy Bourgeois, well, I, I've interviewed him. And I've interviewed Francis Morlapay and all these other people who are tangentially related to the book as well, because I've spoken with a lot of these people and because some of the history I've actually lived through, this is real stuff. I've stayed at the William Penn guest house, the Quaker guest house right in D.C. I was there for the 20th anniversary in 1983, the 20th anniversary of Jobs and Freedom March. I stayed there at that point and I saw how big of cockroaches you grow in D.C., which we don't do in Wisconsin. The book has a complete integrity and feel and compellingness, folks. So Alter to an Erupting Sun, the links on org. Chuck Collins is only one of four books I know that he's participated in writing. This is, from my experience, just a captivating book that anyone should really be able to deeply enjoy. Chuck, great book. Thank you so much. Thanks for giving me the time today to talk about this. Go forth and continue to transform the world like you are, creating altars for us to look at things with integrity and with power. Thank you so much. Thank you for having this conversation. Remember, folks, ChuckCollinsWrites.com is his site. There's also a site, Inequality.org. I'm linking both of them on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. You can listen to my earlier interviews with Chuck Collins as well. Go out, have a deep, compelling read that will cause you to cry and to laugh, and meet me again here next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh